Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel. And today I'm speaking with Suhei Vega, author of Latino Heartland of Borders and Belonging in the Midwest, published by New York University Press in 2015. Dr. Vega is trained as an anthropologist and holds the position of Assistant Professor of Women and Gender Studies in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University, where she also holds an affiliate faculty position in the School of Transborder Studies. Her research and teaching interests include race and ethnic studies, social networks, gendered experiences, and ethno-religious practices. In particular, her research explores the everyday lived experiences of Latinos by tracing how they fashion home, community, and belonging in the United States. Hello, Suhei, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited for this. Wonderful. Uh, I was hoping you could begin our discussion today by telling us a little bit about your personal and professional background. Sure. Well, let's see. I'm a daughter of once undocumented immigrants, and so I think that's definitely important, and it's something I speak about in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, both my parents are from Mexico, and they both overstayed their visas, like many undocumented uh, immigrants do sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. And I was born in this country, um, and both you know, working-class parents. My father worked. Uh, my mother stayed home, but it was very much a working-class experience. Um, I was the first in my family to get an advanced degree, and um, obviously college was not familiar to my um, my older uh, family, and uh, I kind of had to navigate that world on my own, um, especially when it came to graduate school. Um, I had an mm-hmm. older sibling who went to college um, but did not uh, get an advanced degree, so um, this whole world of academia is, is definitely new. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so when I was... Uh, that history is important, obviously, because right. I do work on Latinos in the U.S. and, um, and I, in a sense, I'm almost trying to re, retrace the, the experience of my own family, um, right. give voice to the people that are living the lives that, like, my family was living. Mm-hmm. So definitely, this project is very close to home. That's wonderful. Yeah. Now, did you? I know you did your undergraduate work in Texas. Is that where you grew up, or did you grow up somewhere else? Yeah, so I grew up in San Fernando, California. I was born mm. and raised in San Fernando. Um, my okay. parents, my dad, obviously in the 90s, there was, you know, issues with uh, employment, as many communities across the nation experienced. So he was transferred to um, a small suburb in Texas. And really, I was about 14 at the time when we moved, and that was my first real experience with a non-Latino community. Um, mm. in San Fernando, for those familiar, it's very much a Latino ethnic community and enclave in, in the valley. Right. And um, <clears throat> moving to Texas was the first time I really kind of engaged going to school with and living amongst people that weren't Latino. Right, right. Yeah, th- I bet that would be a big shift. I mean, from greater Los Angeles, the San Fernando Valley to Texas, and particularly, I guess, so this was more of, I mean, this is more of an Anglo portion of Texas, right? I mean, there, there's yeah. plenty of portions that could be very, uh, you know, strongly oh, Latino. That, um, right. 
So this yeah, is no, quite this a is shock. A suburb. Huh? Yeah, this is a suburb in um, and between Dallas and Fort Worth, Arlington. And mm. you know, for those that know Arlington, Arlington is actually pretty ethnically diverse, um, large Vietnamese population as well as Latino, um, but still white majority. And so, right. yeah, that was um, a culture sh- shock. <laughs> for gotcha. Me. Yeah. Gotcha. And then, so you did your undergraduate work in Texas, and then your graduate work was um, the University of Illinois. Is that right? That's correct. Um, so I was a McNair student, obviously, because I did Great. not have a prior experience with higher education. And uh, because I was a McNair student, I had the opportunity the summer before uh, my senior year to take a tour of, of schools that were in the area. Um, and uh, I decided to do kind of a driving tour of the Midwest and apply for programs there because some of the you know greatest anthropology programs are in the Midwest. Right. So um, in doing this tour of the Midwest as a young Chicana from California and Texas, I came across um, Iowa and Illinois and uh, the rural Midwest, and I found um, that there were Latinos living there, and it shocked me. I had no mm. idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and being, I don't know, the young anthropologist that I was at the time, you know, we went into a burrito shop in Iowa City, uh, right across the street from campus, and I heard Spanish, and I was shocked. And so I asked the guy at the hand account, I'm like, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> and they're like, we live here. Um, and they, they've been living there for a long time. And they even said, you'd be shocked how many Mexicanos are in, in uh, Iowa. Exactly. And so I guess that was the first time where I thought, gosh, I'm so upset that I didn't know this. Right, right. Um, and so um, I, I, that was kind of my first entry into looking at Latinos in the Midwest. Right, and indeed that's part of what the book, the book uh, you know, seeks to do, right, is overturn that, you know, the initial presumption that, you know, the, you know, Latinos are primarily, you know, uh, located in the Southwest, uh, maybe, right. you know, primarily urban populations, but that there's actually been a, a longer history of Latinos that, uh, that actually live in, in the country's heartland, uh, particularly rural America. Uh, so will you talk a little bit about that, about how, uh, this project evolved? How, how you, you know, I mean, this was your, maybe your introduction to it, this initial, Right, um, kind of shocking experience that there were Latinos right. in this rural middle America. Uh, so yeah. tell us a little bit more about uh, you know how you'll go from there to writing sure. a book. Yeah. Right. So um, my master's thesis was on a Chicago little village Pilsen area community, very historically present, very well known in Latino studies as right. a large um, Mexicano population in particular. But um, I, as I was living in Champaign-Urbana, I saw that there was other pockets, obviously, of communities. There's a community in Kankakee, which is a small rural, well, not so small anymore, but a rural town between Urbana, Champaign, and Chicago. Um, I found out about this community in Indiana because at the time my partner, now my husband, uh, was going to school at Purdue, and I would visit often. You know, we do the, the whole long-distance relationship thing. He'd come over to see me and see him. <laughs> and... Um, when I was visiting him, I would notice panaderias mm-hmm. um, and Mexican grocery stores. And now going back to my past in Arlington in Texas, these are things that were rare in Texas. I mean, we could find a panaderia, but you had to go find it and search for it. Right. Um, wow. They weren't right immediately in the vicinity. And this town in Indiana was small. And I was, I guess, set up, taken aback by the fact that there was access to a panaderia um, access to e-grocery stores and obviously Mexican restaurants. Um, and I thought that was interesting in terms of space and looking at, you know, their presence, their obvious presence in physical spaces. Right. Um, 
So, um, again, given my interest in, in, in Latinos in the Midwest and looking at these other non-traditional populations, um, I wanted to expand our knowledge of the Midwest as not just a Chicago-based experience. Right. Um, and looking at these other communities, mostly because I also realized that it's not just the Midwest or the Nuevo South, as is known now, mm-hmm. but the 20th, 21st century Latinos are moving into these, quote-unquote, non-traditional settling locations. Mm-hmm. They're going into suburbs. They're going into rural areas. Even in California, they're going into rural parts of California that they might not have necessarily existed in a majority beforehand. Right. Um, and so I wanted to expand our notion of Latino communities not outside of the Southwest, even outside of the urban experience, as in Chicago, um, to look at these other communities. And then once I started researching um, in Indiana, I realized that this community had been there since the 60s, um, right. which is you know pretty substantial um, mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of understanding that it's not really a new community. Um, and I thought, well, there's plenty more out there, I'm sure, too. So I wanted to contribute to that conversation and say we need to expand our notions of Latinos in the U.S. to these other existing communities. Right. And by it, by your realization that it wasn't a new community, you mean that there's, you know, now multiple generations of Latinos yes. living in these spaces, right? Yeah. So even though yes. maybe to, you know, those that, that look at history, um, I mean, typically when I tell people I study 20th century history, some are blown away and think, oh, really? That's a thing? Like, <laughs> 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 I mean, when they think history, they're thinking centuries ago, millennia ago. And uh, yeah, no, no, yeah, it's okay. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, the, so as far as a long established history, yeah, we're talking about multiple generations of families yeah. living and yeah. raising, building community in these places that are um, predominantly thought of as, as, uh, as white, white, right? English. Yes, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, so the book is called Latino Heartland, even though it's got a majority Mexicano population because that was the historical presence. And so you have Mexicanos coming in, in in the late 50s, early 60s and establishing themselves. And now, as I mentioned in the book, there's, you know, their great-great-grandchildren, so fourth generation, right. are growing up in this town. But along with it being a quote-unquote new population or non-traditional settling, you have other Latino communities coming. So you have El Salvadorians and Puerto Ricanos who are arriving as well. And to me, that also made a very interesting dynamic, right? And so that traditionally towns, especially in the Southwest, when you look at Mexicanos, are Mexican majority. Um, And here in other quote-unquote new spaces, you have interactions with other Latino communities um, and that might make for a very different experience than, let's say, in San Fernando, where I grew up. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little about what I found interesting is uh, in the preface, you discuss how, um, you know, typically we think of migration as something that's predominantly economically driven, and, and it, it really is. Uh, but uh, these people, and a lot of the people that you end up speaking with, they actually you know, chose to move to, you know, small town, uh, you know, Lafayette, um, because they saw it as more advantageous to the other urban experiences they'd already had. So yeah. it's not even as if, you know, Latinos are just, although some did migrate directly to perhaps Lafayette, uh, there's a process of internal migration, right? Once Latinos are already here to where, you know, they're, they're following jobs and moving and, and finding new places and, and making decisions based upon what's best for both themselves and their families. And for a number of them, they come to see Lafayette as quite advantageous over, you know, Los Angeles or other, you know, or Chicago or other urban centers. Can you talk about that? 
Sure. Well, so not surprisingly, the 1990s uh, factor is a large moment where you have migration happening across the country. And when you look at places like the Midwest, the rural Midwest, or the Nuevo South, as, as the new term is coming up, you know, the 90s we see is, is a big uptake in Latino migration to these places. Right. And what I discuss in the book is like this is definitely related to issues of, of uh, competition and economics in the Southwest, as well as immigration politics. And so you have um, Prop 187 in California, you mm-hmm. have uh, Prop 200 in Arizona, as well as an economic downturn. And so competition's huge. Families are really trying to figure out what's best for them um, in terms of their economic basis, but also their safety, um, their overall uh, living conditions and sometimes having a network that says you should try coming out here. It's better. You know, uh, uh, what's what's the cost of living is better. Mm -hmm. You know, um, your children will have an opportunity in a way that they may not otherwise. And so that was driving a lot of folks coming to, at least in Indiana. And from personal experience, even to Nebraska, I have um, uh, some cousins that were in Pacoima, which is a pretty... um, uh, you know, it's not urban. It's part of the San Fernando Valley. But, mm-hmm. you know, they lived in Pacoima, lived in an older home, struggled to keep the rent um, or they were their mortgage um, and realized that they actually could make a better living for themselves in Nebraska. And so right. my tios and cousins are in Nebraska now. Um, and so you have a lot of this happening in the 90s, people having to negotiate and, and kind of navigate and balance you know, where do we stay? Do we stay where we're familiar, where we have an established network like L.A. or Chicago? Or do we try make it out to these other spaces where we might have more economic opportunities because the job um, competition isn't as big, but more so more chances for our families to develop, for our kids to have a good time. Um, one of the families is talking about how uh, L.A. is, is full of freeways or all, all freeways, right. right? It's all about concrete jungle in the sense that there's really nothing to do. You're just always working and you're going home and you're not really enjoying, um, you know, life. And so right. people left, went to Indiana, went to other parts and found that they now had a much better um, experience in terms of having a weekend (laughs) and enjoying the fruits of their labor um, in a way that they may not have been able to do in the past because of higher cost of livings and, you know, just situations um, with regards to their safety and their children. Um, Many of them discussed gangs Mm -hmm. and even drug problems in some of their urban centers that they were living at, and they didn't want that for their children. Um, Right. And for some of them, so there's this confluence of both market and lifestyle, right, uh, options, decisions that are, that are prompting this move, um, right? right? These decisions to settle in these maybe, you know, non-traditional, non-typical, uh, Latino spaces. And also, I think you mentioned, uh, that, that some even, um, related to, you know, rural, you know, middle America as more familiar, you know, from, you know, the, the home that was left, uh, in Mexico or other, yeah. you know, sending regions. Is that right? Yes, so that was most fascinating for me is when I talked to people. You know, I, I was in, initially wanting to do space analysis. I right. wanted to look at geography and, you know, how does space matter? How are people rejuvenating old, you know, rust belts, Midwest, you know, in terms of opening grocery stores and businesses and et cetera. And so I asked them about the space that they were living at. What do they think about the spaces that they're in? And uh, some folks mentioned the rivers, the naturaleza, the, na- the natural landscapes is familiar to their rural experiences in Mexico, 
in a way that the urban, again, this kind of concrete jungle experience was not. And so Mm -hmm. from a rural Mexico perspective, if the migrants were coming out of rural Mexico and then going into urban spaces in in the U.S., that was a culture shift just from the rural to the urban. And moving then to these small cities in Indiana and Lafayette became a more familiar, like, not laid back, but in a sense kind of like natural landscapes. You had trees, you had natural parks. Um, and then, obviously, you had the time to go to them in a way that you didn't before in California. Right, right. Uh, so all those things, you know, they were it was a familiar landscape for them, um, which was shocking to me because I think of snow and, you know, <laughs> inches of, of ice on the road when I think of the Midwest. But right. they kind of, in their, uh, in their mind, you know, were able to face the other aspects of the natural landscapes in a positive way, too. Right, right. Well, and that's fascinating to me too, because it's uh, you know also it's uh, to me there's there's the I mean there's always risk involved in migration, but something particular that that I calculate even you know in my very small migrations uh, that I my personal migrations, my family um, between one of my wife and my children, our decisions of when we were applying to graduate school, now that we're applying for other opportunities and things like that. Um, uh, where would we go? Where are we going to settle? And a lot of the conversation always is, what's the demographic? What's the community? You know, um, can, it's, it is the basics of can we find a panaderia, right? Can we find the right kind of tortillas? I mean, things like that. that right. are, I mean, real decisions, real issues for us as we think yeah. of contemplating maybe someday, right, moving out of the Southwest. Um, yeah. I, I am, there, you know, therefore amazed. Um, uh, and that's what this book is about, right? How these people then, right, they... they they have all these other factors that structure this decision to moving to a non-traditional, right, non, pretty predominantly non-Latino area, and how right. they then remake that place, right? How they make that place right. into home, and that's what this book is yeah. about, right? Yeah, well, and it's quality of life. It really is. Is trying to find a better quality of life, and then re- making the spaces that you are living in, you know, by accident or you know by intention, mm-hmm. making them feel better, like making right. you feel at home. Right. Um, and so, yeah, the book talks about how there was one mom who, you know, she her family stayed, um, and other people did leave, by the way, right at the beginning when they arrived. They're like, oh, no, this is not a space for me. This is entirely too different right. from what I know. There's not any Spanish-speaking um, community here. I'm gone. Um, some of those individuals actually came back years later because they realized it had grown. But um, a mom was saying that she would have to make her kids' piñatas because they didn't oh, right. have any options. Right, right. Um, tortillas were even hard to come by. Um, carnes, you know, specific, meat cuts specifically mm-hmm. were hard to find. And so people would make runs to Chicago um, and, you know, ask the neighbors or their family, do you need anything? And they would bring back, like, ice, ice chests full of different meats right. <laughs> and tortillas. Right. Um, and so that initially was difficult, for sure. But it developed into then, you know, one entrepreneur saying, well, let's, let me open up my own grocery store. And it was tiny, um, and then it just started spreading from there. Other folks decided, why not? And you had other businesses grew, uh, and grow, and that made it so that when folks arrived in the 90s, it was a lot more, com- there were more conveniences of home than there right. would have been in the 60s right. and the 70s. Right. And what you're talking about right now really gets at what's at the heart of the book, which is uh, you know, this concept of ethnic belonging, uh, which you which you speak about in, in the beginning of the book. And then also you have uh, two specific chapters that focus on it, where it's this kind of these, these everyday 
uh, like lived experiences of, of building community, interrelating right with people in, in, you know, various social situations, non-political predominantly, but, you know, social in, you know, either religious institutions or just in neighborhoods, like as you just mentioned, right? I'm, I'm running to Chicago, right? <laughs> to, to get yeah. some stuff, right? And, uh, what yeah. do you need, right? And that these, these types of interactions build that sense of ethnic belonging that later transforms to, um, you know, other, in, in what way can be politics, can be, you know, types of mobilizations, other maybe more, um, formal, uh, aspects of, of building or asserting community appropriating space. Because uh, essentially this book really, you know, d- uh, revolves around a, a very politicized issue, right? The 2006 um, uh, mobilizations uh, against the, the Sensenbrenner Bill, HH, I'm sorry, HR 4437, right? I think was the official tag of that bill. Um, and since then, we've had a number of our other, you know, uh, right, yeah. um, big immigration debate issues. But that was kind of, that's the big event that this book um, kind of, I think, maybe begins with and builds back from and then goes forward from, right? So you, right. is that kind of correct? Yes. And so interesting about the Sensenbrenner bill. Um, so I say you mentioned this in the book, Senator Sensenbrenner is from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so what I note is that, you know, this is obviously not the first time that the country deals with immigration and, and within the notion of Latinos in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's not the first time that we deal with it. Um, but it becomes one of the first times that the Midwest is playing a major part in this, right? Or right. non-traditional locations are playing a major part because it was a senator from Wisconsin that introduces the bill. Um, and he's tied to it forever. It's a Sensen Brenner bill. And uh, what we see as a result, obviously, um, not just is anti-immigrant rhetoric from politicians that unfortunately we see even today with the presidential candidates and and in more local debates um, and state-based legislation, but we see um, a counter-response, okay? So you have the political rhetoric that's very anti-immigrant, and then you have um, what many were surprised by, which is the Latino manifestations of, of civic activism right. going on in cities throughout the country. You know, mm-hmm. so you had demonstrations and marches, um, Chicago being the first one, um, and then L.A. for sure. Then you had them in Texas, even here in Arizona, um, and throughout, certainly, the U.S., and people were shocked that right. this was happening, that mm-hmm. Latinos were taking part and really active and trying to move the debate towards more responsible, um, compassionate reform rather than this antagonistic draconian laws that, unfortunately, we still have today. Right, um, right. So that becomes a catalyst into, into looking at this moment because I noticed that people were participating. Indianapolis was one, a large march um, that often gets um, taken off the table because people just assume it's in Chicago, um, right. this march. But Indianapolis becomes a large place where many Latinos who lived in Indiana or even in other parts of the Midwest who may not have been able to go to Chicago formed and organized their Indianapolis rally. Um, and I guess one of the questions I was thinking about as this was all happening while I was, quote-unquote, collecting um, data, right, when I was field, uh, doing field research and mm-hmm. interviewing, um, is I was wondering how did this, like, how are people coordinating? How are people who otherwise aren't running for office um, or very civically active, how are they coordinating for this event? And then what happens when those things, you know, the, the March ends? What happens when people right. go home? Um, and how does, what does their activism still look like? And what I argue is that, you know, you don't have to necessarily be civically active every day to still participate in your community. Um, exactly. So what I'm right. saying is ethnic belonging is the, the basis by which people start 
seeing themselves as belonging to a community, being willing to fight for that belonging, mm-hmm. but also not being assimilated into the larger community by saying, right. I'm actually ethnic, and right. I also belong. Right, right <laughs> um, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and so the book begins with this um, more of a historical look, right? You're, you're, in, in a way, it is perplexing to wonder, right, how uh, this bill, which I love reading the whole title of the bill because it's just, you know, I think it just speaks to the the, the yeah. kind of irony of it, right? So the, the so Simpson Brenner's bill, HR 4437, was the Border Protection, Anti-Terrorism, and Illegal Immigration Control Act of 2005, right? So that's what kind of sparks this, right? So um, you're you're interested then in, in looking at a couple of things, right? The formation of community um, by Latinos in this white space, but then also, right, how does this bill come out of this rural space that is so predominantly white, right? And so chapter one then looks at, you know, it takes like a historical look of central Indiana and the role of mythology, history, mythology, and migration, right, to the region. And in particular, you, I love the, the term that you, um, you use here this phrase, you know, this, the, the palimpsest of, of history, right? It's this kind of layering of histories that shapes notions of belonging, both within the nation and then within, you know, this, this, this regional, uh, this regional area and local community that kind of conditioned the response, right, to both the migration of, of Latinos and then the, the kind of fury or flurry of, of anti-immigrant rhetoric that rose up both within this community and then as a nation as a whole, right? Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that, about the history of central Indiana and the predominantly, you know, what's the, then the, the predominant narrative history and, and mythologies that have allowed people to imagine that community a particular way. Right. So um, what's important is that the letters, to the, so one of the things I do in one of the chapters is I kind of call the task the letters to the editor and the different political rhetoric happening, both from politicians but also from local um, individuals who wanted to portray a certain image of Indiana that was absent of Latino contributions. Mm-hmm. And so the letters of the editors themselves are hitting on history. So they often will write something like, my parents came to legal way or my, my immigrant ancestors assimilated, why can't they? And so I started looking at that history. And I should say that I was trained as a historian, as an undergraduate as well. So I'm partial to history mm-hmm. <laughs> and critiquing it. Um, mm-hmm. And so when these letters started saying, you know, my grandparents came the right way, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, let's look into that. What did their grandparents do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what what was the way that they came? Um, and looking at Indiana in particular, so Indiana forms part of what they, what's called the German Triangle in uh, early European immigrant history to, to the U.S., um, where there was a large population of German immigrants coming to the U.S. in the uh, mid-19th century into the early 20th century. And this was a very ethnically German population. And, um, you know, again, there was subtle things throughout the research. The current Latino um, Spanish services for, for Catholics is in the same church that was German-founded, you know, again, back in the 1800s, in the mid-1800s. And so I saw the layerings of the past and how, how did the German immigrants experience their life there, um, and how does that relate to Latinos today, especially when some of the very um, descendants of those German immigrants are the ones that are casting out the Latinos, right? right. When 
had they known their history, they would have seen that their own immigrant ancestors went through the exact same thing. Exactly. And, you know, what would they have thought of the way that their grandchildren are acting towards these new immigrants? Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, there is the KKK history of Indiana. I mean, we can't forget that, that there was a resurgence of the KKK in the 1920s, primarily through political means, <laughs> to take over the state of Indiana and definitely use xenophobia to that uh, realm. Um, and then you have um, the fact that Indiana was a quote-unquote free state um, in terms of its black residents and how you know it considers itself as progressive free state, um, but in fact, in practice, it wasn't necessarily very pro-black um, in terms of uh, residence acceptance. Right. Um, and then the initial history I start off, uh, one of the histories that I start off with is looking at the Native American experience and settler mm-hmm. colonialism. Right. Especially when letters to the editor would say, you know, we came the right way and this was our land. And I'm like, well, really, was it? Right. <laughs> and looking at the other histories of settler colonialism um, and really kind of unpacking the way that the, the past is remembered um, and misremembered mm-hmm. um, and how that misremembering then allows people to casually forget um, and then negatively uh, see Latinos who are arriving. Right. Yeah, you refer to this as a as a pathology of forgetting, right? This privileging yeah. and re- reimagining of a white German past and one that was particularly assimilative, right? And and yeah. that's the that's the rewriting of the history, right? Because it, it right. these communities weren't assimilative. They were no. very ethnic, forming ethnic schools, right? Religious institutions yeah. where in oh, their yeah. language I- predominated, right? One of my favorite stories comes from the German families, from that, that very church, by the way, that also now houses the Latino population, the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. who at some point, um, they had new teachers coming in, and the German families, German parents, wrote the mother superior and basically slammed her for sending non-German-speaking teachers and saying, this is not happening again. Mm-hmm. You're going to send us German speakers. Um, and I guess as a, as a Catholic myself, right, I know what that means to stand up to somebody like the Mother Superior and mm-hmm. say, this is not happening. <laughs> right. And so they were very active in maintaining ethnic identity. Now, unfortunately, right, they went through the hysteria from the World War One exactly. that slapped down their experiences, but more reason for than German Americans now to not do the same thing to Latinos. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And so then chapters, uh, I'm going to skip chapter two because I'm going to include that with our discussion of chapter five and and where we really start talking about how Latinos create, created their sense of ethnic belonging. Um, and I want to cover chapter three and four because it fits really, you know, into this, uh, discussion of the rewriting and reimagining of of history. And that is, uh, can we talk about, about the, the discourses that began to emerge, uh, you know, in, in 2005, 2006 as, you know, the the uh, Sensor Brenner bill is is being discussed in the media. You discuss this as there's a, there's a process of othering and racialization that starts to really gain a, a lot of tread. Uh, you know, again, both uh, this was happening across the nation, but we're looking specifically here in in central Indiana. So can you talk about how that kind of process worked? Like where was where were these narratives being formed? Um, right. right? Who was doing this? Uh, right and well, you see it from, from both, and, and what I talk about is, is this is like the lived impact of poli- um, political rhetoric. And so mm-hmm. you see it from a national perspective. You see national individuals, Sensor Brenner being one of them, but he wasn't the only one, obviously. Um, you had national figures um, talking and, and creating this, this image of Latinos and, and undocumented immigrants in a negative way. 
And then you have local politicians, uh, because that was also an election year. And so the local politicians certainly took it on as their thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you had all that trickle down then to ways people actually talked about Latinos in their neighborhood. And here I'm not talking about undocumented immigrants. We're talking about the way that they translated the negative um, images of undocumented immigrants to all Latinos. So what I say in the book is that even though people kept saying, oh, this is not about race, this is about legal. And, you know, what part of legal don't you understand? Except for when you look at the actual rhetoric and the discourse, you see that there's a lot of slippage, right? And so when people start talking about language use, when they start talking about living in the neighborhood – they are not talking about the legal. They have no clue. You know, somebody mm-hmm. can speak Spanish, and that doesn't mean they're automatically undocumented. Mm-hmm. But so there was slippage in the rhetoric from the letters to the editor, um, and even some of the politicians, that though they would say this is about the legal immigration issue and the uh, quote-unquote illegal immigration issue, their references were often race and ethnic-based. Um, and so... Their actual examples were not to deal, dealing with the legal aspect. They were dealing with somebody's ethnic, racial, cultural makeup. Right. Um, and that's where I said that's the big problem, um, is that they easily slipped into race-based arguments. Right. Um, but they would never acknowledge that, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So the discourses of you know, anti-immigration, legality, nativism, these things became, you know, uh, uh, what is that, uh, you know, trans, what is it? transported or put onto Latino bodies, right? Latino bodies became marked as just by any type of ethnic marker that can be perceived as Latino or, again, be that language or any type of phenotypical look or cultural practice. Those people came to be labeled as part of that, this group, right? Right, and it goes back to early early social science work on the problem, uh, the Mexican problem. So, in early 20th century, you right. have uh, Manuel Gamio researching the Mexican problem to look at, you know, what's the problem with Mexicanos in the U.S. This is 1920s mm-hmm. and 1930s. Now, what's happening, what happened then in 2006 and is happening still, I argue, is that you have uh, folks say the problem is the quote-unquote illegal immigration, and yet they see problems with anyone that's dark-skinned, speaks Spanish, ethnically presents themselves as Latino. Those things have nothing to do with legal immigration, mm-hmm. but it gets, they get raced as the problem. So anybody that spoke Spanish in public, anybody that just looked quote unquote Hispanic, whatever that means, um, was then branded as a problem. Um, mm-hmm. and the larger notions of, of problems with the U S. And so, and then you mentioned the, the name of SB 1070, I'm sorry, um, four, four, three, seven, mm-hmm. uh, and how it becomes an anti-terrorist uh, right. bill. Right. And so obviously then all these things kind of congeal in a post-9-11 world so that anybody that can be identified as quote-unquote illegal, given these racial markers um, and ethnic langu- linguistic markers, becomes race negatively as a problem. Right. And the Sensenbrenner bill is really, I think, the, the first piece of national le- legislation that I can think of, right, that really... Um, uh, sought to really establish this connection between an actual, you know, national security threat with the U.S.-Mexico border, right? I mean, this is only a few years after um, 9-11, of course, um, and so it's 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 both interesting, with you know, so ironic that, um, you know, within a bill that predominantly targets the stripping of rights and privileges, uh, you know, from... Uh, 
ethnic Mexican migrants, uh, that it is labeled, you know, something that has to do with anti-terrorism and right. national security. But, it, but it's really yeah. just, again, it's really just about making life really difficult for uh, people that are migrating from Mexico to fill, you know, jobs that they're being recruited for, quite frankly, right? Uh, and um, so, anyways, I mean, I just found that as a no, an interesting. No, it's true. I mean, it, it was it was a it was a convenient ploy um, to use the terrorism, the moment of uh, anti-terrorism uh, legislation, to use this right. So that even though, right, if you actually I do this with my students all the time when we talk about nine eleven as the moment um, that changes the way the U.S. sees um, its borders, although it really doesn't, it just kind of emphasizes it more. Mm-hmm. Um, but terrorism, for sure. You talk about where the, the the bombers came from, and many of them crossed the Canadian border, mm-hmm. except for in the legislation, you would think they crossed the Mexican border because that's exactly. the border that's vigilant. Yes, and so that <laughs> goes back to familiar tropes exactly. of a Mexican problem, and so mm-hmm. this is just another way to to blame somebody that we're already familiar with blaming. Mm-hmm. And the other interesting fact, of course, is that these these pieces of um, you know anti-immigrant legislation in in my studies as well, because I've, I've looked at this both from you know California and, and the you know the the 1990s and early 2000s with this flood of own you know restrictionist uh, immigration uh, type of measures, uh, as well as you know things like the Sensen Brenner bill, is that they typically always fall on you know build up to election years. Whether we're talking about mm-hmm. you know a a, uh, you know, whether it's a national uh, presidential election like now, right? right? All of a sudden, right. it's the first issue that, <laughs> that comes to the floor yeah. thanks to Trump yeah. is anti-Mexican, anti-Latino migration, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. also in off year, I mean, this is a 2006, so it's a, it's one of the, you know, the off years where, where there's still congressional elections that are going on, right? There's mm-hmm. other gubernatorial elections that are going on, and it just, it seems to work like, you know, almost like clockwork, right? Uh, yeah, at, at it's, when, a it's a familiar trope. It is a familiar trope. And it's it's one that politicians use because, uh, mm-hmm. right? Let's be honest. It it uh, it it, it gar- garners a, a strong response yes. uh, from people that are that are more upset about new. Where people are really upset are about you know neoliberal policies that are having a detrimental effect on you know middle income and lower income America. But right. uh, you know, since politicians clearly don't have a response to that, <laughs> right. you know, they, let's, let's create, and that's what you're talking about in these chapters three and four, this process of othering that allows you to right. kind of, you know, mark a problem. Like, here's the problem, and this is what we have to right. do away with, right? So we can see mm-hmm. it, it's visible, we can focus right. policy on this issue, and, you know, let, let's handle it this way. Even though you have uh, local politicians that cannot do anything exactly. to affect that, right. they will still use that um, in, in a way that, that garners you know, elections, and so that they bring voters to the to the polls because it becomes a hot topic, right? What's going to get people's attention? Um, one of the other things I talk about, especially in chapter three, is then how the word illegal becomes a way to, to safely talk about these populations. But then I argue is a racial epithet, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it goes from modifying somebody's status to then a noun to describing that person as an illegal. Um, and what that does, in effect, is dehumanizes them completely. Then they're mm-hmm. no longer a human person. They're not even an illegal alien, which was the narrative in the 80s during Puppet White 7 and the 90s. But they're now an illegal, and so therefore it completely strips any humanity from their experience. You can't mm-hmm. see them through compassionate eyes. You can see them through the act. Um, and, and so as such, and, and when I was doing research, is when people would use that term, 
their voice would change. They would get physically angry right, and they would right. use it in a way that was a racial epithet that to me remind, reminded me of research done on the N-word, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like it's one of those things that becomes a way that politicians can get away with using it, that nobody's like calling on it, but it's a subtle way, again, of how racism operates still in this country. Right. Yeah. Your mention of, of how, you know, you, you say that in the book, people's countenance would seemingly change, right? As soon as that, you know, the word illegal was mentioned uh, or something that kind of, you know, connected to, uh, you know, an undocumented person that, that you would you could see a, a visceral change in people. Um, their yeah. tone would change. Their mannerisms would change. Uh, you know, and even to even people that were seemingly, um, you know, that would see themselves as progressive or liberal. Right. Right. That they even bought into these uh, you know, racial tropes that were embedded within this this language of, of legality. Right. right. Well, you also point out in these two chapters how um, you know in this process of othering, what happens is there's kind of a, a metaphorical extension then of the borderlands and of the border itself to Middle America, mm-hmm. to where yeah. uh, Latino populations you know become you know they feel like they are under threat, that they are under constant surveillance, that they have this risk and uncertainty. Of uh, you know whether it's deportation, right? Because you know there, there's there's various proposals that are being tossed up, you know, in uh, the national discourse as to what should be done. Um, you know, if this legislation was to pass, how are we going to get rid of all these people, et cetera, et cetera? And these are all, of course, very familiar because we're handling we're dealing with all this again. There's then mm-hmm. the issues also of microaggressions and then just flat out racism, which which what we've been uh, talking about a bit. So. The border gets extended in this metaphorical sense, you know, through this national discourse and focus on legality and, and immigration policy. So let's shift now to talk to, now, now how did Latinos then deal with this? Let's talk more of these examples of ethnic belonging. How did they form community, um, both earlier prior to this, right? Uh, prior to this, this, uh, anti-immigrant hysteria that, that set the foundation for then how they would respond um, more assertive, uh, you know, in an assertive and, and um, you know, uh, a, a, I don't want to use, pride is not the word I'm looking for, it's a, a more appropriative, um, defensive kind of way, right? Um, right? You know, taking pride in their ethnicity and claiming space right. is eventually where we're going, where, where the, book, right. the narrative takes us. So, yeah, so... You mentioned border theory, which I think is important here to talk about that, that second aspect that you're talking about, because if, and Anzaldúa was obviously a influence mm-hmm. in my life as an undergraduate and certainly um, now even as a faculty member. But Anzaldúa talks about the borderlands as you know, the, the, where the place where the first world grates against the, the, the third or the mm-hmm. third world and bleeds. Right. And I use that metaphor later, right, to talk about even Indiana, and it's no longer the first and the third world, it's when two worlds create against each other and bleed, um, in the sense that you have communities coming together, and sometimes that coming together creates conflict, um, and there's issues, and there's problems, and people can't see each other within the same space, um, and there's, you know, either or, or us versus them mentalities. Now, the for Antaldua, the borderlands was also a place of creative... Um, opportunity, right? right, where people right. can exist in both spaces and navigate those worlds cohesively. And so that's where I went with this like belonging, is that here's a way in which people navigated their belonging, not through notions of assimilation, but through notions of, I ethnically, 
I can assert an ethnic identity. I can have ties back to Mexico. Right. I can go back to Puerto Rico um, during the holidays and also live in the U.S. And, and those two aren't uh, oppositional. Right, right. Uh, and so I mentioned, uh, for instance, one of the examples of ethnic belonging um, was that, you know, um, a baseball game um, mm-hmm. where the, a team from Mexico had come up to do a competition and the team um, was from Juarez. And no, I don't think anyone in the town at that point was from Juarez. So they had no actual connection to the families there. But, all the, you know, as many Mexicanos that could show up went to the game and during the national anthem for Mexico, they stood up and they raised their hand in the way that Mexico does with, you know, your palm facing down, right. and they bolted out that song, and it was beautiful, because mm-hmm. here you have a space in Indiana that's a majority white space, and here you have Mexicanos standing up and asserting their right to sing that song, and that doesn't mean they're terrorists, or it doesn't mean <laughs> that they're anti-America. Right. Um, it just means this is part of our ethnic identity, and even Me- Mexican-Americans stood up, they might not have known the words, but they stood mm-hmm. up with their brethren. Um, and so that becomes an important point of kind of establishing then a right to be here, to assert mm-hmm. a space, to not be ashamed of our ethnicity, um, and then when it came time to it, to protest or march on behalf of that later. Right. You know, it reminds me of when the Mexican national team plays at the Rose Bowl. <laughs> when they do, uh, it, it it's as if the you know the the fans for the Mexican national team almost uh, I I think at times clearly outnumber um, those that are going for the U.S. Uh, men's national team. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, even one of my former advisors kind of wrote wrote a paper on this uh, where it started this yeah. as, a, as an example of that. But that's what it brings to you know images, right? Then um, the and and as you say, it's you know it's a it's an assertion of you know ethnic pride that right. that in in the media discourse and the politicized you know discourse. Uh, becomes somehow interpreted as un-American, but it, right. it's just ludicrous when you really think about it. I mean, when you think of the right. ethnic white identity, there's nothing anti-American about being Irish-American, being German-American, right. uh, whatever, what else, Italian-American. Uh, there's yeah. a, there's And there's communities, you know, uh, right. throughout the country that take a lot of pride in it. I mean, there's little Italy's yeah. all, all over the, the country. I mean, when I grew up in San Diego, and there's a very small little Italy there, but, it, you know, there's there's a strong sense of ethnic pride and even, yeah. you know, municipal pride around that space that, that somehow right. is... To me, uh, stood out as a space of you know that was somehow interpreted as different from the the ethnic Mexican barrio barrio Logan, which is just like not even you know just a few blocks away from it, you know, and and it's just so ironic to me uh, then how um, uh, you know I mean as a historian I've of course studied this and 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 seen the cyclical nature, but it still never ceases to baffle my mind how um, you know. This is discussed in this, this, uh, this uh, and it's discussed through this lens of assimilation, right? That's the issue, right? These, these yeah. people, because they're 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 singing a song and they're waving another flag, somehow they are not assimilating, and thereby they are a threat. Um, when yeah. the the exact opposite is the case, right? The, the actual opposite is that our economy would fail, not not from the absence of of cheap labor. That's not what I'm saying, but no. um, you know, from the lack of the the. Uh, what these people generate as far as our national economy. Right. I mean, their, their consumption, um, you know, habits and patterns. And I don't want to reduce everything to this kind of market analysis, but all of that is right. lost, right? All of that, all of yeah. these con- con- contributions, because that's typically how it's viewed is, you know, under these type of market figures, right? That this right. is what Latino, Latinos cost X and they produce Y, right? And it's, those are always, you know, vastly distorted, but, 
again, it's it's all through this lens of, of assimilation and not assimilating in a particular way um, that is ethnic white uh, is is a threat somehow. You know, even though now we are dealing with over a century of uh, Mexican migration to, you know, just and let's forget the pack, you know, let's forget the Mexican past of, you know, the southwestern uh, portion of this country right. uh, or even its indigenous past and all that stuff. But let's just you know, say, OK, let's pick up from the last hundred years right? um, yeah. uh, it, that, uh, you know, the country's still here, you know, right. <laughs> People are, yeah. uh, you know, merging and uh, they're 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 crafting you know, third spaces, as you bring up in the book, and 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 hybrid type cultures and practices. That mm-hmm. when we really look back, it's it's not you know, there's the country is not going anywhere, right. I mean, it's it's not going to bring an end, so to speak, um, yeah. of the nation or ruin the nation. But but in these highly charged uh, debates, as you point out in chapters three and four, it's it's that perception. That perception is that's what's going right. to happen. You know, somehow there. Yeah, it's not the ethnic identity itself or the ethnic belonging that's a problem. It's the way that we perceive the ethnic identity of this particular population that becomes a problem. Right. Um, so that people, um, you know, one of the letters to the editor, for instance, like, ah, they speak Spanish, and you know, there's no countries that exist with multiple languages that possibly can, ex- you know, you know, be. Per- um, be good in the end, and they, I think they cite France as an example. Mm-hmm. And what I say back to that letter to the editor is it's not the fact that there's multiple languages existing in one space that's the problem. It's the way that people see that that's, right. the, that's the problem. Um, and it's our negative attention to this particular ethnic identity. As you mentioned, right, you have St. Patrick's Day, everybody's Irish, and the Irish spy comes out, yeah. and there's Irish Diddy song, um, and there's no issues with that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that we it's definitely an issue that we have to... Uh, work through mm-hmm. um, that it's not a challenge and as you mentioned right we've had Mexican populations in uh, parts of the country for over a hundred years now um, right. and they you know they haven't uh, caused the downturn of an entire population except in fact <laughs> I would argue that in places like Arizona where I live now it was SB 1070 which is the, the local version of uh, right. advanced immigration laws it was that law that caused an even higher economic downturn when uh, we faced the, the economic downturns of 2010, 2011, because you had people flee. Right. Um, and that with their fleeing, you know, housing issues became an issue because, you know, houses lay abandoned, renting lay abandoned. Mm-hmm. Um, they were no longer spending money in the community. And as you said, we shouldn't just create this notion of Latinos bringing marketability, but you know, it's also, it's, the opposite is true, that instead of ruining a community, it's their leaving that ruins the community, right. I would argue. Right. Well, and then all the other backlash, you know, the disinvestment, you know, from yeah, uh, corporations exactly. and states refusing yeah. to do business, you know, as a result of that that policy. Yeah, indeed. Um, I want to talk about uh, also, because we're still on this issue of ethnic belonging, I think the sports example, just a, it's a great one. Uh, a big theme of the book, though, is... Um, you know the the establishment of ethnic belonging through religious community, um, yeah. and particularly um, you know both uh, um, the interactions of women uh, within the formation of religious community and religious institutions, and how that connected uh, with this building notions of ethnic belonging, and taking you know a, a sense of you know pride and, and place uh, within Central Indiana. Can you talk about that? Sure. So, um, along with the, the marches, obviously, become a, a very public display of, of civic engagement. What I say is that there's other public displays of ethnic belonging that 
can just as importantly display a right to belong. Um, and so I talk about the Easter um, procession that they have there. It's yearly. It's an annual event now. Um, but it's a very, very public display of Latino ethnic identity through a religious perspective. And so they have an Easter pageant uh, of sorts that's outside. Um, and I argue that, you know, having this Easter, Easter pageant during Easter, during the height of the anti-immigration debate, was, even if not purposeful, an important moment to discuss the right to belong, even if ethnically, mm-hmm. in, a, in a public space. Um, and so I was looking at the importance of those kind of religious moments and what does religion and faith have, um, how, what's the impact of it with communities when they first arrive? Like, how are they, are they dependent on these institutions? Um, how do they, the institutions help them or hinder them in some cases? Um, and what I started noticing within a gendered perspective is the female networks were crucial, um, especially because men um, were often, when they first arrived, the ones to go to work. And so females would arrive and have nobody um, and feel completely isolated. Um, and this definitely had an impact on their psyche in terms of kind of their survival and, and feeling completely depressed in the space, oftentimes during winter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where they were <laughs> physically inside and couldn't get out and didn't know anybody in their neighborhood. Um, and so female social networks in the church became ways in which their friendships grew. Um, and whether it was the Catholic church or, um, and the other example I used with Latina Mormons, mm-hmm. um, the sisterhood or the comadrazgo and Catholics becomes a way in which they build their, what we call an anthropology, fictive kin, right? right so right. they didn't have physical sisters in the, in, in the neighborhood because often they were the only families that moved there first or their aunts or their mothers were still in other parts of, you know, California or Mexico. And so the sisterhood for Mormons or the comadrazgo for Catholics becomes the way in which these women found each other and helped each other survive, and I think still do, um, by just continuously having a friendship and a network of people to go to when you need something. So that was definitely critically important for me for ethnic belonging because that establishes people's sense of community. Right. Um, and that they have an invested effort to be there, and they're no longer just kind of migrants that are floating in different spaces, but now they, you know, are buying houses, they're settling in, and they're raising the next generation, and they also have this other network of friends that make it home. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means something when that home is being taken away from you, when the political rhetoric is saying, no, it's not your home, then you're willing to fight for it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Certainly, no. I I just uh, really appreciated these examples because they became very concrete for me, right? In you, you know, you, when one reads, you know, a when you read a term, a concept, you know, like you know, ethnic belonging, it seems so abstract. But uh, what you'd really do is a as a great job of you know showing how this actually works out on the ground through people's interactions and how you know just everyday actions of either. Uh, you know, going shopping or going to a baseball game, or uh, a lot of this is, uh, you know, th- through uh, religion and and, eth- and ethno-religious practice. How these, you know, fictive kinships are are, are established and rooted, and and how that created such a sense of strength for these people, particularly uh, during you know this time in in two thousand six, two thousand five, and two thousand six, yeah. right, um, yeah. where their presence is being again. Um, uh, you know, perceived as both a threat and um, they're seemingly perceived as undesirable, uh, but yet within their interactions amongst each other, you know, they are providing, um, you know, that sense of bond and community that, that helps them to overcome that. And as you say, you know, really start to envision themselves as belonging in, in this place. 
Right. Well, and to tell you the truth, I mean, I started off the interview by talking about how the research I do is often kind of trying to capture the experiences that I know from a familiar perspective from my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was reading, when I was doing graduate work and reading the existing research on, let's see, Latino cultural citizenship and notions of civic engagement and participatory politics, right. um, the thread is often to look at community organizations, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that we need to start looking at community organizations um, and acknowledging what services they do. But I, but behind the back of my head, I kept thinking of my parents and all my relatives, my tias and, and tios and uncles and cousins right. and everywhere, who honestly, not, no one in my family has ever part- participated in a community organization. Right, right. They definitely reap the benefits, I will say that, right, obviously. Um, but they never had the time because they worked so hard. Yes. Um, because they were working, you know, 60 hours a week. And um, the only time we did have was Sunday to go to church. Mm-hmm. And so that became, you know, Sunday church time, my carnesada. That was our, you know, life beyond work. And so I kept thinking, you know, what about all these other things that still build community? Mm-hmm. And what about all those people that don't have um, access to or time to commit to a community organization? They're still participating in some way with their community. We just have to be able to acknowledge it. Um, and we can't just ignore them as, well, they're not the population we're looking at because they're just as important to the community as the community organization. You know exactly, and it's a it's a it's a theme and an issue that comes up in, in my work. You know, as a, as a historian, it, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I mean, I study ethnic organizations and particularly political organizations, but my interest is always right. Um, uh, where do these? Uh, how are these? Where do they come from? Right? What's the, the what are the generative, you know, social interactions that eventually cause these people to to build the bonds that then translate into politics. And it's exactly what what you're talking about, which for a historian, it's it's really hard for us to find it because a lot of times people don't leave that record, right? They don't, they don't talk, they don't leave these wonderful journals of, of, of what they did on Sunday or what they do when they come home from work. And mostly what we're, what we're, it's hard enough for us to find just, you know, the the, the documents, um, uh, or even established oral histories that talk about the, the organizational aspect of it. Nonetheless, you know, just the lived experience, which I think is, is such a, such a great, um, aspect of anthropological work and ethnographic work is that's what you get to do, right? You get to go into these communities and and uh, you know pull from uh, you know document and pull from these lived experiences um, and and be able to do so in, in a very rich type of way that it really makes me envious is what I'm saying <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> well I think that I mean I, I, as I said I'm a historian sort of by training as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that that's where obviously you can always get this with archives um, and depending on on how back you go right you can always do oral histories mm-hmm. Um because that could be a space in which you, you know, obviously when we talk about oral histories with community organizations, you want to talk about the, the way the community organization cr- was created and its, you know, its successes and its issues. But talking about, as you mentioned, like other things that happened to build that sense of community that then would result in a community organization, I think can be done in oral history. You just mm-hmm. kind of exactly. be, at, be willing to go outside the box. And so... When I asked one individual um, about a particular community organization that had formed and is still there, um, you know, where did it begin? I didn't just ask her about the organization's history, but I asked her about her history. Right. You know, what was life like for you when you first arrived? And mm-hmm. how did you end up getting involved with this community organization? And then we just went back in time and really started getting at those details. And she says, ultimately, it was being a mom 
and being lonely and having mm-hmm. to go to um, for what's a, for not kindergarten um, first steps no preschool or um, head start it's like preschool mm-hmm. uh, and so she would go to these kind of preschool things um, with her child and then the mother started coordinating and kind of being like let's get together for coffee when the kids exactly. are at school or whatever exactly and then they would get together and then they found there was an issue and we got to do something about the issue but that took time yeah yeah um, but without the, those initial coffee meetings of just getting together yeah. as mothers, that organization may not have formed. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's great. And um, where we are running out of time, I wanted to talk about yeah. two other things really quickly because I'm, I'm yeah. really, really conscious of your time. Uh, so first, I want to I want you to bring us forward. Right. It's been about ten years since. Um, you know, uh, both the, the sense of printer bill and the mobilizations that, that spurred from it. Um, so if you would first talk about that and then we'll, we'll close with you talking about what you're working on now, but, uh, but tell sure. us kind of bring so, us forward the next 10 years. What's going on in central Indiana right now with, with these communities? Sure. Well, unfortunately central Indiana or Indiana in general, um, uh, followed the, the path of, of the place I'm living at now, which is Arizona and it created its own state based uh, legislation. Um, that was supposed to deal with the undocumented community um, from a state level. Um, and so, just like you mentioned earlier, when there's particular political uh, election seasons, you have politicians rally and they pass legislation because they think that their electorate's going to be happy. Um, and so, as a result, Indiana has a, a pretty strict um, state wide bill that kind of mimics that of Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about this in the conclusion because I think it was important to realize that, you know, it's not ended, right? The issues right. haven't ended, obviously. Right. Um, some communities have some individuals. I, I did follow-up interviews um, after 2006. I went back about three more times. And each time I would go, I'd, I'd hear about another family that left. Um, mm. And so, but mm. they're not leaving to go to Mexico, point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to other states. Um, right. Right. Um, and so, you know, folks aren't what, what it, Romney called itself. Uh, deportation. They're not self-deporting. Yeah, they're not self-deporting. Um, no, they're going to other states or their cities in which they, they can find sanctuary, and not because they're sanctuary cities, but because they can live without being completely policed all the time. Right. Um, and that, as we mentioned earlier, is taking um, issues uh, or taking them. Um, takes uh, a toll, right? Benefit, well, it takes mm-hmm. a toll on the community that they're leaving, right? right. Um, they're taking with them their bodies, but also what they contribute to that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people have left, but other people have stayed and say, and, and have said, no, I'm not leaving. <laughs> I'm right. staying here. And this is, again, this is my home and you have no right to, to legislate me out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, when I've done some follow-up interviews, people have uh, continued organizing um, from a smaller level, um, but they also, you know, face walls sometimes. And so, you had individuals who were, were taking part of the, the immigration rally in Indianapolis who later continue to go down to Indianapolis and have one-on-one meetings with their legislators. I mean, you can't get more civic engagement than that. Right. Uh, and try to really rally and, and position the importance of not doing an Arizona-style bill. Um, the bill shifted and changed its wording to kind of match some of the issues. So some individuals felt like the bill was gone, but in fact, it's still on the record. Hmm. Um, and as a result, depending on where you are in Indiana, um, you're going to get caught up in the system. And so what I, I compare it to sundown towns, um, mm-hmm. which was in Indiana, 
um, with, against black communities as right. well as other parts of the U.S. where, you know, you better not be caught with the sundown or else you're, you, your body will be in danger um, right. at the time if you were black. But now I'm saying now it's if you're brown, right. um, people know certain areas of Indiana that are okay because <laughs> they're not going to police you. And they also know where to avoid. Right. Um, and the, the, that's really disheartening mm-hmm. because it's saying that some um, people are taking um, – liberties, shall we say, with the bill and being really restrictive. Um, and other communities are like, you know, we we realize that the, the Latino communities here are not our enemies and um, we can utilize their efforts better if we don't target them this way. Right. Um, and so as a result, depending on where you live, depending on where you drive, you might get caught up in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a problem. It's not equality in this country. Right. Yeah, no, it speaks completely in the face of the 14th Amendment, you know, and, and, yeah. and um, it's equal protection provisions and, and whatnot. So, right, well, because people can take it to themselves as to how to how to uh, disseminate this law. Mm-hmm. So, well, thank you for bringing us up to the present with it. Now, um, tell us so what. It, so, what is it you're working on now? I know you have another project. Right. Yeah. So, I I kind of inspired by the Latino community that I experienced that I interviewed in Indiana, the Mormon community um, in Indiana definitely had a lasting impact on me so that when I moved to Gilbert, Arizona, when I first got my job here at ASU, um, it was during the time of Russell Pierce's recall. And if mm-hmm. the audience will remember, Russell Pierce was uh, the author of SB 1070, which is Arizona's uh, state-based law. Um, and it was, it was daunting but inspiring to see the recall, right? Yes, people uh-huh. did rally and recall him from office, and that was wonderful to see. Um, and what I started remembering from Latin, from uh, Indiana was that there was a large Latino population there that were Mormon. Well, not large. It was growing. Mm-hmm. Um, that were Mormon, and they had positive interactions with their white Mormon brethren. And so I thought that was interesting here in Arizona because Russell Pierce himself was Mormon. And in fact, at one point even said that he had the Mormon church's backing, which he never did. <laughs> right. Um, right. But he argued that he did. And so mm-hmm. therefore, I thought that was interesting. And I thought, well, I'm in Arizona. I wonder if there's a Latino Mormon population here thinking it would be like the size of Indiana. No, I was wrong. It was huge. (laughs) Um, And it's it's not just a large Mormon population. Um, So in Indiana, there was a branch, which is a tiny community made up of maybe 10 families total on a good day. Um, And here you have entire wards. I want to say the last I saw, Phoenix was serving 30 wards of Spanish-speaking members. And wards are much bigger than than just 10 families, obviously. Yeah, it's like a whole congregation, hundreds, hundreds of people. It's an entire congregation, exactly. So if you think about that, there's 30 Spanish-speaking congregations in Phoenix alone. There were more before Russell Pierce um, with SB 770. So when I came to to Arizona, I I was interested in the Latino Mormon experience. I'm like, how are they experiencing Russell Pierce? What is the impact on them? Um... And I did some history, and I found out that not only had there, is there a large population here, but then it's historical. So the Latino Mormon population in Mesa, which is where I'm doing most of my research in, has been here since 1918. So mm-hmm. we're talking almost a century mm-hmm. of existing Spanish-speaking Mormons um, in Mesa, Arizona, in the same district that Russell Pierce comes out of. Mm-hmm. So. In a sense, that's what the new project is, is looking at the Latino experience in the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Looking at the uh, history of Mesa is important because Mesa also has a, the, it was at one point the only temple in Arizona 
Now there's more. But it's the first temple in the Church of Latter-day, uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that had Spanish services, Spanish endowment for, for a long time. Wow. So it becomes a center for uh, Spanish-speaking Mormons. Um, more, uh, Spanish-speaking Mormons from Utah even make the migration to mm-hmm. Mesa to go to the temple here. Gotcha. Um, and so, and following on my research, I look at ethnic belonging in the church. Um, how are Spanish-speaking Mormons blending their ethnicity and faith? Um, and then I'm certainly looking at gender um, and the role that the sisterhood, going off of my the, the chapter in the book, the sisterhood of Latina saints, how does it compare to Comadrazgo in the mm-hmm. Catholic tradition? And how is it important, especially in a state like Arizona, when these communities are still being policed um, and may not feel safe necessarily? So... So it's on the Latinos in the LDS Church, and it's still ongoing. Mm-hmm. I'm still collecting research, um, grant writing now, so I can try to get some more funding to, to do some more research and collect moral histories as well as um, ethnographic data. Great. I mean, that is, that is much needed research. As and as you say, you know the, uh, and it's not just within the Mormon Church; it's within many uh, Protestant churches. I mean, the existence of uh, Latinos in you know say you know. Uh, Christian religion, religious populations and congregations outside of Catholicism is really understudied, uh, and yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on that. And so it's just that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read uh, your work that comes out of this project. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a while in the making, but I'm, I'm excited to, to have it come out soon. <laughs> great, great. Well, thanks again uh, for coming on and uh, to New Books and Latino Studies and discussing Latino Heartland. Uh, we encourage our uh, readers to you know pick up the book and and, and to read it and discuss with our communities. It's so timely. Uh, again, it's it just it it. it I chuckled so many times as I was reading, you know, yeah. the issues of, you know, the, the narratives and the discourse that was going on. And I was thinking, man, you could yeah. just change the date, you know, to 2015, right. 2016. It's, it's, it's very yeah. similar. So, yeah, thank And I thank you for, for having me. And I do hope that readers would take it. And it's not, um, even though it's definitely in the Midwest, I think that what I try to do is bring attention to this particular locale, but it can translate to other communities certainly as well. Definitely. Thanks. Definitely. Well, thanks again, Suhei. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to New Books and Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Suhe Vega, author of Latino Heartland of Borders and Belonging in the Midwest, published by New York University Press in 2015. I encourage you to grab a copy of Dr. Vega's book, and you may do so by following the link to Amazon on our New Books and Latino Studies page. Also, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, which you may do through iTunes or Stitcher, or connect with us via Facebook and Twitter, or send us an email to newbooks and Latino studies at gmail.com.